Our conversation on this episode of Two Diligence does contain adult language. This time on Chew Diligence. I think the reason I'm in this is because I like taking care of people. Chef Howard Hanna. The word legacy is important to me, and um, like the rigor is important. Like it's in people's lives. On feeding Kansas City with truly local cuisine. Our pork is like world class. Like so, I do a lot with pork. What our soil can produce is is what we eat, and um, and so that to me is the way to tap into it. Is that celebrating the bounty of our region. And why he feels a responsibility as a chef to venture beyond the plate into the political. These are the people I care about the most. Like, these are the people I love. And so it's easy then to, like, kind of find your voice and realize, like, shit, if I don't talk about this, like, nobody else knows what I know. Like, I have to say what I think um, because I do have a unique perspective and I do have, like, broad and deep knowledge on a lot of issues. Well, we're so excited to welcome to the podcast studio, Lindsay Shively here with Jill Silva and chef and owner of the Rieger and Savah, Howard Hanna. Good morning. Good nice morning. to be here. Thanks for joining us. We like to start off with a little segment called First the Food, uh, talking about places around town we've eaten. Jill, you want to start us off? Well, it's mozzarella season at Jasper's, so went and had some fresh mozzarella and, um, you know, it's always fun to watch him. The water is so dang hot. I don't know how he sticks his hands in there and gets those curds all going and show. stretches them. Yeah. Mozzarella theater, basically. Um, yeah, it's really fun. You know, I've, I've seen it a couple times. It never ceases to amaze me. I've tried to make um, cheese at home <laughs> from a kit. It was kind of a disaster. So <laughs> I think I'll just let him do that. So, uh, yeah, he does this basically from, I think, May to uh, October when the tomatoes are, or September-ish, when the tomatoes are starting to uh, peter out. So get on over there, you know, check it out. It's always a good show. Um, and then I also had a new quiche oh. that I was not familiar with, Sea Jack's. It is amazing. He wholesales to a lot of different restaurants, and um, I had it at a pop-up bakery. It is just very delicious, so I advise people to, yes, to start looking around. Um, check it out. Sea Jacks. Sea Jacks quiche. And if you don't know more about the mozzarella, Jasper came on one of our previous episodes. Go listen. And he talked about the story of how that mozzarella table side came about. So, Yeah. yeah. That mozzarella is so good. We make it ourselves at the restaurant and, um, you know, just the way we do service, it's like we have to make it and then refrigerate it and then serve it. I had it last night. summer. But yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really good. It's, it's still really quite good. fresh. But um, but to have it like that fresh, you know, like that's that's generally only like the cooks get that. Like we'll make it and eat some right then. And that's better than what we end up serving in the dining room that light, you know. Yeah. So it's cool that he does that table side. It is really cool. So wh- where have you been lately? What have you been eating, Howard? Um, well, I've got a couple on my mind. Um, actually, yesterday lunch, I went to um, Yasmin's Cafe on Independence Avenue. And um, that was um, – I'd had sambusas from there at a couple, like, events that somebody had went and picked them up, and they're they're really good. Um, but yesterday was the first time I ate in the restaurant, and uh, it was it was great. I went at breakfast, and they have a, a thing called a Rolex that's um, chapati bread filled with eggs and some kind of 
filling. In this case, it was chicken hmm. um, and a really good hot sauce on the side. And it was a lot like a breakfast burrito, but with with different flavors. And there's a great uh, masala chai, and um, it was incredible. That was I'm definitely going back. Yasmin's. Yeah. Yasmin's. And then uh, the thing, when I looked up on the map how to get here this morning, I decided my lunch plan for today, I'm going to go to uh, Fanny's African African Cuisine. Um, That jollof rice is like one of my favorite things in the city right now. And uh, so I'll be going for that as soon as we're done. Oh, two good wrecks from Howard. You're traveling just right here in Kansas City. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like sort of a world tour, it sounds like. Yeah. And, um, you know, in my day-to-day, I kind of... I eat tacos more than anything if I'm if I'm eating out, and um, you know, and I I always will. That's the best. But um, but generally, like I live in the River Market, and I work obviously at um, the Crossroads. Um, so I'm on foot or on the streetcar most of the time, and so I hit all the spots around there like a lot. And so anytime I'm like in the car and have a reason to go to another neighborhood, I think of like what have I been meaning to try there and and explore. And um, there's so much great stuff spread around the metro, but yes. you know it's unfortunate you have to drive to all of it. But uh, but yeah, it's great. I uh, I thought of one, Jill. I was trying to think before. I I got to try KC Pinoy at Boulevardia. <gasps> oh, excellent! They had their food truck in the back because you know it, craziness with all the crowds. Um, banana ketchup for the win. There you go. It and- was. Really good with their garlic rice and a hot dog from them. I did a little research on banana ketchup, and I wish I was remembering it all now. But help me out, Howard. You might even know the story on it because you go to Chrissy's quite a bit, I don't love you? It. And as a matter of fact, uh, what was it yesterday? No, the night before, she had her 40th birthday party at the Rieger in the private room. So Aww. yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan, and it meant a lot for us to. Um, you know, get to celebrate with her. But yeah, Casey Pinoy is incredible. I tell my staff and everybody that'll listen. So it's nice to shout them out here. Um, it's incredible. That dish seasick is like soul food to me. It's really cool. It is delicious. And um, I'm, I'm thinking about the banana ketchup. I think there, there was some shortage, maybe tomatoes perhaps, and it became banana ketchup. Um, oh. I, I want to say maybe during the war, somebody should Google this and it, that's where I found it, because um, you can actually buy banana ketchup in some Asian markets, I think. Mm-hmm. And I may have I may have had it the first time at Casey Pinoy as well. It was different and fabulous. And, you yeah. know, they had an abbreviated menu because it was the festival, but I can't wait to go back and try everything else. What, what's your favorite thing there? Um, probably that dish, the sisig. It's, the sisig. Um, it's uh, different cuts of pork, and then um, an egg gets cracked raw onto this dish, like as it comes out on a hot skillet, and that's it's it's really good and um, spicy and hmm. um, lots of textures, and um, it's like you know the chewy and the fatty parts of pork, but that's a lot of what I love. Um, there's also on the lighter side, there's a really cool eggplant dish. I'm sorry, I don't know any oh. of the names of them, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, there's a really cool eggplant dish on her menu that it's a thin slice that's really – it's, like, dipped in an egg batter. And then um, that's pretty incredible, too, like, unexpected. Like, I knew, like, the fatty pork's going to be good, you know. Yeah, but yeah. The, the eggplant dish was cool. I um, ran into Chrissy Newcomb, the owner, um, maybe a week ago at the Rookie Food Truck Festival. She was one of the rookies not so long ago before she went – to a brick and mortar as well. And uh, we were talking about you, Howard. She was oh. really honored. I said, I see somebody in town has been eating at your restaurant quite a bit. And she's like, I'm so honored. <laughs> <laughs> she really enjoyed that. I want to ask you about, because I know this and I don't think a lot of, some people do, but is there a good Samoan restaurant in 
back us up into your childhood because uh, one time I asked you for a Simone recipe and we had yeah. a really great time with that. Yeah, that was really fun and I appreciated that opportunity to share a little bit of, of our culture. Um, uh, no, I don't I don't know of any. Uh, no restaurants? Like, like you know, it, I don't know. I mean, that's the, uh, I don't know how much we want to dive into this, but I, I feel like there's a lot of like, like appropriation of like Polynesian cultures going on in the bar and restaurant industry that um, really is pretty far removed to, you know, from the indigenous cultures there. And um, really strictly Samoan, like most Samoans that immigrated to the U.S. like aren't interested in opening restaurants. So um, of like Samoan chefs in the world, like there's a couple I follow that are that are rad, but like they're all, you know, there's like one in London and one in New Zealand and, you know, (laughs) we're kind of kind of spread far, but um, all the best Samoan food I've ever had has been in Samoa, for sure. Yeah. Did you grow up eating Samoan food? Because you had a recipe from your mother that you shared yeah. with the Kansas City Star a number of years ago. Yeah. We um, we always ate Samoan food, especially on special occasions. Um, we definitely, um, you know, my, my dad was uh, American and Caucasian, and my mom was from Samoa and grew up there. And um, but he had lived there for many years and he was fluent in the language. And so for both of them, it was really important to transmit the culture and to raise the kids like knowing about it and uh, our history. And so um, we always ate it, but all of the best things you can't get here. And so some of the things that travel and are shelf staple or shelf staple, we ate a lot. So those are kind of the the heavy starches like green bananas and taro and breadfruit Um they were hard to find, especially growing up in Kansas as a kid. But um, but my mom always found them. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but they you know they'd been in a warehouse a long time when we ate them, and it wasn't as good. But the exciting stuff for me over there is all the fresh seafood and all the fresh fruit. And um, like when you eat a mango over there, you like cry. It's it's <laughs> not like you'll hate our mangoes. You can't, you can't go back. Like yeah, seriously. Like I don't eat mangoes here. Like um, so. Um, yeah, I think like when people are excited about like asking me questions about our food, like all the stuff I want to share, I can't do it justice here. Mm. And so, you know, there's coconut milk in cans and there's, you know, um, right. we love like Hawaiians love the spam. We love we call it pisupo. It's um, it's a canned corned beef. There's things like that that are like delicious and they're meaningful to me, but like they're not going to impress anybody <laughs> like to open a can, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, if you like starch. The taro is where it's at. It's like four times the starch of potatoes. And um, it's a really comforting, really, like, familiar flavor for me. Um, but honestly, to people who've never had it before, like, you're probably not – you're like, you won't hate it, but you, you probably won't love it either. It's, You've got it's the memories pretty, with it. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty, pretty like, you know, one note. So um, growing up, did you did you have a love of cooking or did this come later in life? Uh, it was definitely later. Um, I uh, Food was really important in my family. And, you know, like I said, it was a way to connect with our culture and, and really our family that was mostly overseas. My dad didn't have a big family here. And so we grew up pretty isolated. And, um, in Manhattan, that, Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so knowing that, you know, I saw cousins like once every couple years or or less than that, you know, but knowing that I have 40 cousins in Samoa and like a bunch more in New Zealand and a bunch more in Australia. And, you know, through like eating the same things and learning about that and hearing my mom talk about how food was prepared and how families gathered for special feasts and things like that, um, 
like it definitely made us feel more connected. Um, and so it was really important on the Samoan side for cultural reasons, but also, um, you know, in a very like Midwestern way, my dad had a badass garden and like we worked in the garden from like as soon as we walked. So mm -hmm. like I remember planting radishes when I was a kid and because my dad was a, a professor of education, so he was all about teaching us all the time. <laughs> and uh, in every way, he's a, he's incredible, like, teacher. And um, really, like, radishes are one of the fastest things to go from germination to harvest. And so when a kid's really little working in the garden, you know, if you plant something and you don't see it again for, you know, three months, right. like, they don't remember the stages of that plant or that the work it took to plant it or, or going to shop for seeds or anything like that. But a radish is quick enough, like for, you know, a short memory and short attention span, you can like connect the dots and understand <laughs> the whole process. And so I remember growing things like that that were quick and easy in the spring um, at a like really, really young age and knowing what very fresh, like real food tasted like. Um, and, you know, I've been to like, like really wonderful restaurants in California that have the best network of farms and all that. I've been to Italy and had the tomatoes in season and all that. And like best tomatoes I ever had in my life were like hot from the sun and in my dad's garden and hmm. like juice making a mess on my clothes, you know? Hmm. Um, so, so food was really important, but cooking like wasn't, I didn't see it as a career path for many, many years. What sparked it then? What, how did it start? Um, kind of stumbled into it. Like I started working in restaurants when I was 15 but um, it was just a job. Just a job. Yeah. yeah. And really, I pretty quickly fell in love with, like, the life. Like, I loved the rush of service. I loved the team aspect of it. I loved, you know, being the organization and, like, setting yourself up to win and that feeling like, you know, they're coming and they're going to try to get me and they're not going <laughs> to get me. You know, like that kind of competitive, like, Are you back of the house set. always? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Until – the last year, honestly, is when I kind of forayed into the dining room, and it's scary out there. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah, we, um, I, I really loved like the, the service, like the adrenaline rush you got when you got slammed, and especially when it went well. And I loved being a part of a team that was dynamic, and people could help each other, and people could see what needs doing, and you know that kind of communication. And um, it was all exciting to me, and it all like felt natural pretty quickly. And um, so I kind of struggled. Like, I did well in school in high school. And, you know, it was definitely my parents were both the first in their families to go to college. And then they both had, you know, graduate degrees um, and were both in education. So everybody in my family expected us to go to college. And um, really, like, I just didn't question that. And I tried college and um, I did horribly. I wasn't in it. And, um, I really didn't try it at all, and I worked full-time in restaurants, and I was, like, stressing out about school and trying to really hard to figure out what to do with my life, and um, I felt, like, unhappy and really stressed and a lot of pressure at school, and meanwhile, was paying them, and then in the restaurant, <laughs> right. I felt like they're happy when I get here. I make everybody better. They love me. They think I'm cool, like, and it's fun, and yeah, I liked working hard. I liked applying myself there, and I liked to sweat and do work, you know, and in doing that and getting paid for that, you know, it's, it seems really obvious that I should have just gone that route, but I hung on to like, no, I'm supposed to get a degree. I'm supposed to, you know, and I, so I kind of took a while to find, to admit it that like, Hey, maybe I should just be a chef. Hmm. Um, and then you ended up first in your class at CIA, I read. Yeah. And so Culinary Institute of America, for those who 
think you joined the intelligence agency. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what was that like? Um, well, you know, maybe like that kind of like slow start in the industry was good for me because if I had, you know, known at 18 that I wanted to be a chef, I think a lot of people um, try to move up too quickly and try mm-hmm. and, and really like don't spend enough time like repeating the basics and getting very, very good at the craft. And because for me, I was a line cook and I wanted to be a line cook and I was fine with it. It was like I was, you know, as I fell in love with food and really started getting interested in it, um, I was reading books and I, w- I got like excited about cooking at home. I got excited about going out to restaurants. Um, but in the meantime, like I grilled a million steaks, you know, so like you, <laughs> you know, could do it, it in your was, sleep if you had to. Right? Yeah. 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 And so um, at that point, you know, I was 26 when I went to culinary school in New York and um a lot of the kids that were 19, like, really didn't do very well. And their mm. experience there was a lot like my experience had been in college. Right. Um, just kind of no focus and, and you know, late to class and not caring <laughs> and, you know. Well, that makes and, sense. You were past that and you were ready yeah. to get really passionate. Yeah. And at that point, I, I had two kids and had, like, sold a home and moved across the country. Like, I wasn't there to fuck around. I was there to win, you know. And um, really uh, – yeah, I I threw myself into it, and there's like, it, it's a great school, but it's also like, you know, what you make of it, like anything. And you had access to a lot of cool stuff. There was a great network of farms in the Hudson Valley, and then there was like, to me, the red hot center of the culinary universe, like one train right away in New York City. And so, uh-huh. um, hmm. to get to the city all the time and explore different cuisines and to see what all these chefs were doing, and um, to hit the markets and to get to stage in like very, very like wide range of restaurants was incredible. Like, and, and so school was like a great experience, but New York city was really like Hmm. what drew me there. You had, yeah, you had some amazing experiences there with chefs too, as a stage or, Mm. or externship or whatever it Mm. was. Um, Talk about Larry Forgione and his importance, because I don't think, uh, a new generation is as familiar with him as you and I might be. Yeah, I think, um, you know, especially his son, Mark, but a couple of his sons are in the industry, um, have maybe, like, gotten more attention lately. And so maybe younger people know about Larry Forgione because of because of his kids. But, um, uh, yeah, they were – they called him when I was uh, – when I was a young cook, they called him the godfather of American regional cuisine. And, um, you know, I think that was, like, appropriate. I mean, it was kind of, you know – He's Italian, so they had to make a mob reference. Like, I don't know about that. But um, but it was like, you know, the fact that he said American regional cuisine was really important for, I think, our whole generation of chefs. And when I started out, um, nobody talked about regional food that much. We were all looking at what's happening in New York, what's happening in LA, what's happening in Paris. And, um, you know, and then later Tokyo and then later Spain and all of that. But um, – but nobody talked about, like, respecting, like, our food traditions and our, um, you know, cultural differences within the U.S. And um, and I think Larry Forgione was huge for that. And then two other chefs that I admired at a young age. And looking back, I'm just really happy that I happened to grab their books and happened to, like, care about them more than I cared about somebody else. I don't know. But, um, but Alice Waters out in California doing, like, very local, you know, very, you know, a true regional cuisine that she was definitely at the forefront of developing. And then um, Paul Prudhomme in New Orleans, like celebrating Creole and, and Cajun food. Um, 
you know, and then growing up here too, to recognize like when I'm reading about these cool cultural cuisines in other places and then knowing that like barbecue here is that, and like, Mm. that's one of the great, you know, foods of the Americas and, and definitely deserves all the attention it gets. Um, We've talked a lot about Midwestern cuisine over the years, trying mm -hmm. to define that. I remember sitting with, I think it was you and Colby and a couple other people trying to sort of what was that, you know, and what have you concluded? Having grown up in Manhattan, uh, having a Samoan background, having gone to New York, having worked around the world, and then coming home, what is Midwestern cuisine? What is Kansas City besides barbecue? Or how yeah. does barbecue translate into what you're doing? Because you're not, a, barbe- you're not, not a barbecue. you're not Southern, right? Yeah. You're yeah. not a barbecue restaurant. Yeah. Um, I think it's still hard. I'm still struggling to, to define it. And I think, um, you know, if you come eat, you get a better idea. And if you come eat 20 times over different seasons, you get a better idea, you know, like, but to like spit it in a couple sentences is pretty hard. I think that um, really the cuisine here is definitely based on different cultural influences and that, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't like, it's, it's sometimes hard to draw the line between um, Southern food and and Midwestern food, but I think there are differences, mm-hmm. and and then definitely a lot of you know things that are specific to our area that maybe like German immigrants introduced and things like that. You'll also find yeah German immigrants introduced that in Pennsylvania and they introduced that in Texas and you know and in you know Chihuahua and Mexico. There's you know German Mennonites. You know so like any of those things like they're not you know they're not indigenous. It's not what native people here we're cooking. So, um, you know, and that's unfortunate. Like we lost that, like their whole, you know, um, like really, you know, in a very deliberate attempt to like break their culture and, and, and break them. And, uh, you know, it was a genocide and like to drive out the Buffalo and to kill all the Buffalo was really like making it so they can't make their food. And when they can't make their food, then they're not them anymore. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not like you can pinpoint it because it didn't actually, you know, come from here. So you look at like, where did it come from? Well, there's definitely like influence of indigenous peoples, but I'd say that's more from South America and from Mexico, you know, and those native people definitely like brought Nick's tamal and we have tamales and we have tortillas and, um, you know, and then that definitely through slavery, there was a lot of like African influence and we definitely had, you know, ingredients and techniques and so many of the like legumes and starches and tubers came from Africa and rice and um, things like that that are definitely, you know, so really like lots of different immigrant cultures that have been here long enough to sort of merge and sort of become distinctive. And and then really it's based all on what grows here, right? So like everyone had their ideas about food and their tastes for food. But yeah, really like what our soil can produce is is what we eat. And, um, And so that to me is the way to tap into it is that celebrating the bounty of our region and like thinking about what our land can produce and what our land produces better than other people. Mm. Um, that's the things that I want to focus on. And then it's hard to define it like from a like cultural or historical perspective, but I think it's easier to looking at like our pork is like, like world-class like, and, um, so I do a lot with pork, you know, and, um, and, and certain things here, um, are like, you know, we don't have like the name that like some regions do for like a certain food. You know, it's not a Georgia peach, but a Missouri like freestone peach is a 
incredible thing. Hmm. And, um, you know, and they're like pretty perishable in a shorter season and there's a lot less of them produced. But, um, but I don't know. I don't need it. I don't need other peaches. Like they're pretty like wonderful. And hmm. every summer at the end, I kick myself that I didn't need enough of them, you know? So, um, yeah, I think, um, to do more with preserving what comes from here so that we can eat it year round is something that a lot of chefs are doing and looking more into and also doing a lot more with wild food, I think is something that more chefs are doing. And I'm really happy about that so that we're really getting the taste of like our place. And, um, and it's not like we have great tomatoes in August and then we still serve tomatoes the rest of the year, but we buy them from Italy in cans, you know, Mm. like we can make, we can can our own tomatoes and they'll taste like our soil and they'll taste like our people grew them. And, and I like that. The so, whole other side of prep, I mean, right? It's yeah. a long plan, too. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So 2010, I believe, is when you opened the Rieger, correct? That's right. Okay, so we're coming up on almost a decade. Tell That's us, crazy. I know, it is. <laughs> Tell us what you thought the restaurant would be and how's it evolved and where is it evolving to in the next decade? Because hmm. I remember when you opened... I thought, Howard Hanna, do I know him? You were cooking mm-hmm. at the at the River Club, which is not easily accessible for average yeah. average Joes like me. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I felt like I was learning about somebody who actually, when I looked at your bio, you started up Michael and Debbie, Ted Habiger, you worked with a lot of people. So you were sort of their right hand, a little bit behind the scenes. And then you emerge and you have this cool restaurant and you're in the crossroads when it's not right really right. crowded mm-hmm. <laughs> um so like i was fascinated by you and immediately i guess kind of pegged you as local midwestern and maybe a little meat oriented mm-hmm. is that fair yeah i mean like i i we kind of embraced that in the early years because, I mean, like I said, pork is where it's at here. Like, that's the thing that, it, like, we do better than anyone else. And um, and so, of course, it's going to be central to our menus. And then it's also because of, like, Samoan culture. Like, you know, my parents had a pig roast for my first birthday party. And, mm. like, it's tradition, like, you, you know, give the, the birthday boy or girl the, the pig's ear to chew on because they're probably teething, you know. And so, like... You know, like, that's in my heart. Like, so it made sense that that's what people wrote about and talked about. But at the same time, like, I always talked about farms. And they're mostly not, like, hog farmers. They're mostly vegetable farmers. And, like, I I love so much different food. And really, like, still, like, growing up here, I'm still, like, an island kid at heart. And um, I would eat seafood every day if I lived close to it. But it just it Mm. doesn't make sense here honor my menu or, you know, in my mouth all the time. But, um, but I love it, you know? So I, I could easily be like the vegetable guy or the seafood guy, you know, if things were different, but, um, but it makes sense that that was the focus when we opened. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's, it's crazy looking back, like what I thought it would be. Um, we, we had a sense, uh, my partner, Ryan, maybe, and I, that, that were the founders of the Rieger and, um, and, uh, Manifesto, we, um, we definitely like had the sense that things were changing and big things were possible here and that really um, where we are at 20th and Main, it's like easy to find, a, you know, a, a major intersection. We had a parking lot. Like 
everything about it was right, but what made it special was the building itself mm-hmm. and the history. And we really wanted to um, connect with that and to learn about it and celebrate it because I don't know. I, I, I'm really happy that early on Ryan and I both agreed and both tried really hard and consciously made decisions to not be the hotspot and not be trendy and not be like the cool restaurant of 2010 or 2011. Um, and, you know, honestly, when any new restaurant opens here, we're still a small enough market that, you know, however many like media outlets there are covering food, they're all going to cover it. And so, you know, no one's doing anything wrong, but like at the same time, everyone will talk about this one restaurant for the next year. You know, that's what happens. And so we somehow like kind of consciously like tried to sidestep that and like, yeah, we'll take it. Please talk about us this year. We need people to know about us. But at the same time, like, but look, like where what's supposed to be here, where what's like gonna be here. And there's so much that can happen around here and we love our neighborhood and we love our city and we love our community. And, um, to know like some of the history and to consciously like make branding decisions and the name of the restaurant, you know, that taps into that history and acknowledges it was, um, I think important for defining who we were. So I'm happy that like we got that right. Um, Mm -hmm. And believe me, we got a million things wrong, you know, and, and, you know, eight years in, it's for sure a work in progress still. Like, you know, there's 10 things. If we walked into the restaurant right now, I could point to everything I want to change, you know, Um, but it's a marathon and, and, you know, we're still in it and that feels good. And the way the neighborhood's blowing up around us feels really good. Um, I think like the Casey food scene is exciting right now. And um, I'm happy. Um, It feels weird. Like just my personality and my like, um, attitude it's like I want to be like I want to have something to prove I want to be the young up-and-coming guy who's trying hard you know and like I don't know sometimes we look back and we're like damn we're like established like we may not be like (laughs) old school you know but like we're like you know well you've spun off some really interesting things too because uh Patrick Ryan uh started Mm -hmm. Port Fonda uh the the airstream. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, outside, and he was using your kitchen. That's right. Yeah. Um, and let's see, you you've had you've had other things happen. You've had a lot of people go through, and so Savah comes along, and you decide to do that in Westport. Mm-hmm. You've had lots of important people going through and coming out and becoming rising chefs in their own right. I've been working with Kara Anderson lately, for yeah. instance. Uh, Anna Karen, I think, was oh, yeah. working with you. At, at one point and is now at Rye. So you've had a lot of people come through your kitchen. Talk a little bit about how the community works together and how you kind of, you, you've helped spawn some things. Yeah. I mean, I think um, that, I don't know, like I, I start sounding old, I think when I talk like this, but, uh, but the word legacy is important to me. And um, like the rigor is important. Like it's in people's lives and um, the people who've worked there and the people who, you know, celebrate important moments in their life there or, you know, or just come every Wednesday because they work down the street or whatever. Like, um, it means something to a lot of people's lives, and that's really important to me. But thinking about the legacy of, you know, what I can do with my career is, um, I hope, like, a lot bigger than the four walls of 1924 Main Street, you know, and that um, really, like, people whose lives I impact go out in the world and then they make a difference and they do cool stuff and they do delicious stuff. Mm. And, um, 
you know, I, I love that there's, I mean, really, I think if you name like your top 10 favorite restaurants or bars in KC, there's a good chance that five of those owners or chefs or somebody high up in that restaurant, like, pass through our doors. Yeah. And that's like, you know, we don't get credit for what, for their work and their ideas, you know, and they're definitely like, they're, it took blood, sweat and tears for any of us that have something. But, um, but yeah, but it means a lot that um, I wanted to be the type of culture where, um, you know, our, our staff isn't just talking about, you know, sports or who they want to date or like getting drunk the night before, like that we're talking about, like, doing things and going places and, and being somebody. And that I think that the restaurant industry is a really important career path in our society where it can be accessible to anybody and it can be, um, you can be wildly successful in it without having to have gone to college. And neither Ryan or, or I have a college degree and, um, and we're doing good. And, um, and I want people to, that, that are young and haven't found their voice or haven't found their passion yet to see this as a real option and that this is a legit profession and that it's not easy and it's not fair. And it's really, you know, you have to love it to be good at it. But if you love it and you want to work hard, you at least have a chance of like doing your own thing and, and, and growing and getting, you know, to develop your own vision and then put it into practice. And um, nothing makes me prouder than seeing like our people going places. And yeah, it's a really cool feeling. What is Chef Howard like in the kitchen? We've heard from so many when they were coming up in the industry that a lot of yelling and, you know, discipline. And did you experience that? Do you find that effective now? How is it? Um, I'm so happy that this conversation is being had and, um, you know, here, but also nationally and internationally. I think, um, yeah, most people that grew up in the kitchens I did, like, experienced yelling and hand throwing and and all that and you know unfortunately also you know tons of sexual harassment and tons of you know racial discrimination and there's you know major problems with the way it used to work and um it's it's so positive that even though it's scary and it's shaking things up and it's you know really like uncomfortable to talk about so many of those things like by talking about them we get to change them and that to recognize that for our generation of restaurant workers, like we don't have to accept the way that it was when we were young and that we are empowered to change it. And a lot of us are having the right conversations. And that doesn't mean we figured it out and it doesn't mean we've put it all into practice yet. But, um, but I love that it's changing and it, I, I feel like it's changing fast. And so um, for me personally, that's a lot of things, but um, you know, starting with like how we talk to each other in the kitchen, like, I definitely, I got yelled at all the time. And honestly, like, um, if somebody was abusive, like, I wouldn't have took it. If, if, if somebody was, number one, knows more than I do, number two, um, is there and they're working hard and they're in it with us, and then number three is right, you know? Like, if I screwed something up and you're mad that I screwed something up, like, I'm not going to argue about that, you mm-hmm. know? It's yes, chef, and keep your head down and do it fucking right next time and do it faster and wipe your board down when you do it right, you know? And um, and th- that's ingrained in me, and, like, that doesn't feel horribly wrong looking back. But I know that I was fortunate, and, you know, that um, being a man, it's a very different experience. And then also, you know, like, 
whatever other things like being smart and well-spoken, you know, being physically like strong, you know, all those things like probably made my experience a lot different than somebody else. Speaking English certainly made my experience different than other people's. And so, yeah, to know that, yeah, it was really hard for me, but like it didn't, you know, it didn't break me. It didn't stop me. But then like, wow, if I had anything else put on me, it might have, you know? And so for the women beside me, it was different. For the immigrants besides me, it was different. For people with darker skin than me, it was different. And um, and knowing that, like, hurts to look back. And and I, it's it's shameful to look back and, and realize that. Um, and realize how we weren't questioning it then. And I didn't know my privilege then. Um, so I'm trying to really feel that now and make sure that we are doing things differently. And... Um, you know, the restaurant industry has always been really diverse, but if you look at, you know, most places you can walk into, um, I, I think in most fields, if you walk into any business and you see, like, okay, there's men and women, there's somebody who, you know, seems to be out and gay, there's somebody that, like, is older and somebody that's younger, and there's a lot of different types of diversity, and you can see different skin colors on the staff, you think, like, this is a good place, like, they must be good, right? And most restaurants are all of that. But then when you look closer and pay attention, you quickly see that, okay, probably like the, in, you know, mainstream, like quote unquote American restaurants in Kansas city, right? Like most of my friends places, like if you look at it, us, you can see that like probably the people who make the most money tend to be white. They tend to be native born. They tend to be English speakers. And, you know, often they tend to be men and straight men. And that's, that's crazy and, and wrong. And then when I turn that inward and I look at, like, when I walk into the Rieger, like, yeah, like, there's a lot of first-generation Americans. There's a lot of people with from different ethnicities. But generally, like, why the hell do I have, like, white servers and Latino food runners? Like, that doesn't feel right to me, and it doesn't feel okay. And, you know we're each human beings and, and I know them intimately and like these people are in my family and they're in my life. And so, you know, I don't begrudge the, the white members of my staff anything, you know, at all. Like they work really hard and they should make what they make or more and they're awesome people and they care about my vision and I love them. But like, it sucks to hear like young, talented, like, you know, black and brown people like, get passed over. And to, to know that that happens in the world is one thing, but then to like see that sometimes that happens in my restaurant, in my kitchen, like that sucks. And that's where I'm at today. And I'm really struggling with that. And I'm really trying to change that. But a lot of times, like just understanding that like, okay, so a line position opened up, you know, you've got like a couple prep cooks that are showing promise and a, you know, a couple guys on a, the cold station that are showing promise, who do we promote? Right. So Often it comes down to any of them could do this job and could learn it. They all love our food. They're all trying hard. They're all smart. Like they're, they're good people and they want to be here for the right reasons. They could do the job. So who do I give the job to? Well, so-and-so like doesn't show up, you know, once a month. And, you know, like maybe it's totally outside factors. Like they live farther away because that's the place they can afford. They have unreliable transportation because they can't get better transportation, you know, or they have a criminal record and sometimes they get pulled over and they have to go spend the night in jail for something, you know, minor and, and stupid. And um, ultimately, like that, the way that those things that are way bigger than my restaurant and way bigger than what I can impact maybe um, are, you know, going to factor into my decision of 
who can show up every day on time and be ready to go and focused. And then when that person time after time is a white man, like that sucks, you know? Um, but, it, but that's the truth. That's where we're at. And um, so in a specific hiring decision and a specific promotion or training decision, like I have to do the thing that's right for the team. I have to do the thing that's right for the business and my investors. And I want to put the best person in the best place. But at the same time, like if language is a barrier to to advancement, then I want to remove that. Like I, that's something I really want to want to think about is that um, like some of my favorite people I've ever worked with and some of my favorite people I work with today in my place are, you know, Mexican-American or, or other immigrants and their prep cooks or their dishwashers, but they love food and they know so much about food and they're passionate about it and they're talented cooks and they should be the ones on the line, you know, and they maybe can't be on the line because they don't feel confident that they can do it because of language barriers. And so, um, yeah, that's something like we can solve, we can remove it. And there's other things that, you know, I've had like African-American employees that live on the east side of Kansas City that like transportation is their barrier to advancement, that they can't stay till close because the last bus leaves before they get off if they close. So they can only work but have to leave early. And then, well, you know, the guy who gets promoted is a guy who can stay late, you know? So I can see that and I can change that. I can decide to structure my business differently and to structure our training and our promotions and everything else to remove as many of those factors as we actually can and help people find affordable housing and help people recognize and, and get access to, you know, safe, good transportation, but also just like to understand that we don't all have the same life and we don't all have the same challenges and that there's things that already happened in this person's life years ago or generations ago that is impacting their job performance today. And to know that and recognize it is a really good start. And then we got to figure out what to do with that. Well, and you've been doing some political things. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Howard went to Washington didn't he, <laughs> recently. Yeah. Uh, so uh, talk about some of the political things that you, uh, I think a lot of chefs shy from, but you've, you've been diving right into. Yeah. I, um, I really, uh, um, so much of like my political beliefs and, you know, and, and the society I want to live in and the kind of community I want to be a part of so much of that has been very, very consistent my whole life. Like I'm the same guy. I like, you know, I value, I have the same values, you know? So it's not like a new awakening to a lot of things, but it's just like, all I did was grind for 15 years. Like I just cooked and cooked and cooked. And meanwhile, like I'm, I'm trying to have a family and I'm trying to be a, a husband and a father. And, you know, I, uh, I d didn't work out as a husband, but, um, but you know, I'm, I'm a father and I'm like, that's like a, the best thing in the world for me. And like those relationships with my children are like everything to me. But at the same time, I can see like, in my mind, it was always for them. And I was always like working that hard to be a good example, but also to be able to like send them to college if they wanted to go and things like that. But I was so focused on my career and on my craft that it made it impossible to do anything else. Like, um, and, uh, and finally, like I'm like in a position where I can step back from the plate in front of me and I can like look at, first of all, the whole 
dining room and then the whole business of the restaurant. And then gradually, like, the more I'm able to delegate and the more we build a strong team and get good people in places, like, I can look around more and I can breathe more and and do anything that's, you know, I can read a book that's not about food. I didn't, I don't think in, you know, really, like, in my 20s, I doubt I read a book that wasn't about food, mm. you know, in 10 years of my life. Like, that's crazy, you know? So, um, so now you can like, look around at the world around your restaurant. Yeah. And work from the outside in. And and to know that, like, from my family, like I, I said, my parents were both educators, but everyone in my family is either in some sort of, like, education or in some sort of social work. And, like, we were raised to, like, help people and to care about people and to love people. And it's weird to me when, like, I ended up, in a sense, like a businessman. I buy and sell things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um that doesn't seem like who I thought I was going to be. But then, like, I look at the way that I can influence and impact so many people's lives and the way that I can support, like, the best farmers with the best practices and do things that are impacting, like, the health of the people that eat that food but also the environment in a global sense. And I can have huge reaching impacts for things that matter very, very much. I feel like, yeah, my career path is in line with, like, my family's values very much, even though it went a different way than we would have expected. Um but um, but at the same time, like, to, like, recognize that, okay, personally, my life allows me now to, like, spend time engaging in a, politi- a political issue or, you know, to read more deeply about things. That's really great personal that I have time to do it. But then secondly, like, the position I'm afforded because of being a chef and a restaurateur and, like, you know, we're public figures and we have followers and we have followings and... And um, to know that um, really especially things about our industry and especially things about, you know, food, which food impacts, you know, diet and health and environment and immigration and trade and (laughs) labor and everything, right? So um, to know that we're looked at as as experts and that um, we are people who talk to a huge cross-section of our population, like that the people I'll interact with personally today is probably more diverse than like a lot of people in Kansas City will in a month or a year or maybe in their whole life. And that's awesome. I love that about my life. But it also like gives us unique perspectives and it gives us deeper knowledge on a lot of things. Um, and to understand issues because we can connect them personally with someone we know in our life that like this doesn't impact farms this impacts like this farmer that i know their kids names and they know my kids names and i love them um you know that's that's a different voice right and to know like this transportation issue impacts like my dishwasher who works harder than anyone i ever knew in my life like busts his ass all day every day and is the best person and is the kind of person we want here and he can't get here sometimes because of transportation issues like that's going to make me think differently about transportation and then to see, like, the state of our industry as a whole and, like, how – really how poor so many of the workers in, in the hospitality industry are, um, it's horrible. Like, th- these are the people I care about the most. Like, these are the people I love. And so, um, yeah, so it's easy then to, like, kind of find your voice and realize, like, shit, if I don't talk about this, like, nobody else knows what I know. Like, I have to say what I think. Um, because I do have a unique perspective and I do have like broad and deep knowledge on a lot of issues. Um, so to start recognizing that 
and feel that like empowerment from that and then want to use it and want to use it for good has been like a wonderful thing. I'd say for the last, you know, maybe two or three years for me, I'm trying to like turn that up. Um, and uh, a great resource was the James Beard Foundation. Mm-hmm. They do a, a thing called the Impact Series that there's different like sort of wings of it. But um, the uh, Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change is a program I was got to be a part of um, two years ago. Um, some other chefs in KC have actually my my partner at Savoy, Caitlin Corcoran, mm-hmm. is there right now. She mm-hmm. she finished she <laughs> finished the program, but she's still in New York from that program. Now one of several um, she's taken part in with them too. Yeah, right? she yeah. did she did a women in entrepreneurship thing with them, and then and then this that's more on um, food policy and specifically about the farm bill is this, but um, but what they did at boot camp was really life changing for me. It um, it got us to recognize like our reach and that you know we. We could be seen as like legitimate voices in this national or international conversation, and that we could be—we already are. We lead diverse teams. We know how to get things done and make things happen. You know that are changing rapidly, and we can—I don't know—we can respond to like complex problems, and we can lead diverse teams. And like so many of the skills that made us good as being chefs could also benefit society in a larger way. Kind of an organist activism, organization, those kinds of things. I think if we look at uh, Jose Andreas, probably one of the greatest examples out there, who ever would have thought yeah. that chefs would be doing on the ground disaster relief or advocating for particular um, homelessness or, or yeah. AIDS or whatever it is. Um, and You've you, taken on, on your social affordable housing and mm-hmm. wage. Yeah, the, affordable, yeah, to um, a livable wage. And then um, really, yeah, Jose Andres is a huge inspiration. Um, I, My friend, uh, you know, uh, Arturo, uh, um, at 1900, so you'll see him later. <laughs> later <this laughs> Fabulous. Week, right? um, but uh, he, he loaned me the book. He was he was in Puerto Rico for uh, the second of the, Arturo the two Arturo Felici, we're talking yeah. about, yeah. Yep. Um, he was, uh, he, his father was there for both the hurricanes, and he was down... Um, for the second one, and um, and very active, like hands-on in the relief effort, but also was sort of like, you know, for me, a personal connection, like seeing what it's actually like there and things that you didn't see on the news. And um, he actually loaned me um, the Jose Andres book recently. Um, I had a stack of books I was reading, so it took me a while to get to it, but when I read it, it was really powerful. Um, it's called We Fed a Nation, or sorry, We Fed an Island. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely read that book. It's strong. Um and his speech at the Beard Awards two years ago was pretty, uh, pretty inspiring. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's natural that like all the things like you know that would be needed in disaster relief are all the things like we're uniquely skilled for hmm. in kitchens. And you know, ultimately, like we feed people, you know. And so when people are hungry, like we're the people you should ask how to how to make it happen. Exactly. Uh, I was listening to a podcast, and it was just like, oh my gosh. A great guy. He came uh, to Kansas City years and years ago, and I interviewed him. It was very early on, so he wasn't who he who he is now. Yeah, um, didn't I, didn't know he had this activism streak in him at all. But uh, very outgoing person, so you could kind of see. Uh, it's it's fascinating to me. Is there a risk though when you're, uh, you know, you, you, you yeah, you want to appeal to a wide clientele. Have you had people who have said, yeah, if you're going to support these things, sorry, I can't? Or have you picked things that you feel are kind of universally acceptable to the clientele that you have? 
Um, you know, obviously it impacts like my decisions on what I say publicly and what I might say as Howard Hanna, the person or, or the Rieger, the restaurant or Savoy, the restaurant. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely is something we have to think about, you know? Um, and honestly, like on a personal level, like I think the reason I'm in this is because I like taking care of people. I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, I have a, I have a need to be loved. I want everyone to be my friend. I want everyone to think I'm cool. Like, you know, we love and you, thanks, Howard. Thanks. Look what I need you. Right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, like we we spread love and like we nurture people, and so um, that's my nature. Is like I want to get along with everyone. I want everyone to like like me and feel like they can talk to me. Um, and I know that like some of my views will be off putting to and as divisive as everything is now, you know, um, like it is dangerous to, to stick your neck out and speak up on a lot of things. And, um, uh, it, I, I don't know the answer to that really, but like, yeah, I'll tell you, like, I'm scared to say what I think sometimes. And I say it anyway. And yeah, there's pushback, but then there's also like massive support and it's like, in good proportions. So like something comes along that somebody blasts us on social media or, you know, when Caitlin said something about gun control from Savaz, like social media accounts, like we got lit up, like they trolled us hard. We had like hundreds of bad reviews on online platforms and, you know, most of them we could get taken down and we could show like this person was never at the restaurant. This isn't about our food or service or anything about the experience. Like, you know, and there are ways we could combat that. But at the same time, like, it hurts. Like, it sucks when, like, you know, hey, we don't like kids getting shot, you know? And then somebody hates you for saying that? Like, that sucks. <laughs> like, um, and, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it, it definitely makes me nervous. And I'm definitely, I feel like I am walking a line of, like, you know, there's a whole lot of causes that are important to me. And I definitely, I have viewpoints that are radical, like, that, you know, most people that consider themselves liberal or most people that consider themselves progressive, like I'm to the left of them, you know? And, um, and yeah, like a lot of that doesn't make sense, like from my platform as chef and restaurateur, but people in my life know my thoughts on all that stuff. And then the things that are like, you know, current events that like need action now, you know, I think it's easier for me to get involved with more publicly and know that, you know, Yes, there will be people that hate me because of this. And there will be people that stop coming to the restaurant probably because of this. But there'll be a lot more people who already kind of know about us and maybe they've been a couple times over the years. But, like, now they'll see that and be like, oh, that's a reason to go back now. Like, I want to support these people. They're good people and they're they're trying. So, um, so I don't know. You just have to trust that your friends will show up to support you because you know damn well, like, the trolls are going to come at you every time you open your mouth. Like, it, yeah, it's a fact. Wow. That's we have a, a slew of city officials new as of this morning. Yes. We're taping this the day after the election. Are, are you on the point of civic engagement? Do you talk to city officials? Do you talk to them when they come in or do you reach out to them? Yeah. Some of the things you talk about? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and, uh, you know, like uh, I feel like that's that's kind of recognizing that we kind of have this privileged like vantage point where we have access to, you know, people in power and decision makers like, you know, that. They host lunches there, you know, they host events there, but they also, like, come there to meet with somebody and talk about an issue, you know. And, like, you don't intrude and you got to respect their space. And, you know, if they're the mayor, they've got their bodyguards there to make sure you do, you know. <laughs> but uh, but um, 
but you know, they're people and they, they live in our city and they live in our neighborhoods and, and they think what we're doing is cool and they're choosing to spend their time and their money like to eat at my establishment, then yeah, they should probably care what I think too. Right. Like, so, um, yeah. So I reach out. I don't, I don't talk to people too much in the restaurant, but making the connection in the restaurant makes like a later email mm. about something a lot more powerful, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, watching this election, um, I was involved, like, it was hard for me because of time commitments, but I was involved with the group Casey Tenants that was really focused on um, housing issues. And um, just seeing that, like, how quickly that came together and how diverse that group is and in, in many ways. And, um, like, there's, like, radical love amongst that crew that's really inspiring. And they really did shape this election. And I think that of the new council, most of them signed a pledge that within the first 100 dates they're going to sign a tenant's bill of rights. And now it's a mandate, you know, and, and Quentin Lucas won. And, you know, I think Campaign honestly, issue for him. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I think that people power did that, you know. Like, he's a good guy. He was going to be a good guy. And, and Joey Justice is awesome. Like, I really, like, I was so happy we had two good candidates for mayor. And, like, um, and, you know, in, in certain districts, I feel like we had two good candidates. I wasn't, like, particularly invested in specific races because, you know, I was like, yeah, like, I know who I'll vote for, but I also, like, I'm fine if they lose, you know? Um, but the fact that the overall conversation has shifted so far on certain issues because people spoke up and regular people spoke up, like, that's really inspiring and that's cool to see, like – happening in our city. And I don't know if we have good exit polls, you know, and if they can tell about demographics of the voters from yesterday yet. But um, but I feel like there's a lot of new people engaged and there's a lot of people that from marginalized communities that are be- recognizing their voice, you know, and are they starting to vote? Uh, I noticed you. I you so. Yeah, you you had the I voted and, and the photograph yesterday uh-huh. going through Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just that is powerful. Yeah. I mean, um. Does your kitchen staff tend to vote? I mean, do you? No, the majority don't. But, See, that's the thing. But but I mean, but some do. And yeah. like, I mean, I had a I had a great conversation with my chef de cuisine yesterday about the mayor's race, and I had a great conversation with um, uh, somebody who's uh, prepping for Savat now um, this morning about you know. So that was like one last night and one this morning, like, and they were both like nuanced and knowledgeable and had strong opinions. And I'm like, yes, like I'm glad we're talking about this stuff. And like, you know, when like you're their boss and they're on the clock. It's kind of weird to like push, you know, I don't, I don't think it's right for me to talk too much about politics to my staff in while they're on, you know, but you know, that's definitely a captive audience. But they see you, they see you, right? So that's an example. So even if you, if they don't know or agree with your political views, they saw you voted. Yep. So does that, I mean, I would assume that it spurs them to think, if I'm not registered, perhaps I should be. Yeah. And I know, um, 2016, more uh, hospitality industry voters were d- voted than ever. Like, I'm, I'm quite sure of that. And I hope that continues, like, as a trend. Like, it's more each election. Um, and even in, like, you know, the, the mayoral primary, it was cool to see people on my staff voting in a city election at all. I don't think was happening 10 years ago for, like, people in their 20s who, like, don't you know aren't traditional like stakeholders in in local government like and just to kind of the point you made earlier when when you are talking if, if they happen to have a different opinion than you do politically that is welcomed also in your restaurant i mean they are continued yeah it doesn't affect their job oh no it, it definitely wouldn't impact you know their their shifts or their hours or their compensation or anything like that but you know 
if if they start talking, we'll definitely have a conversation, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, that I don't know. Like I think it, most people that are drawn to the industry and most people that are drawn to my restaurant in particular are share important things in common. And so we're definitely not all the same politically, but like we're all you know probably um, you know have core values in common. Um, but, uh, yeah, the conversation within the restaurant has been interesting to watch. And then um, really within the industry, though, it's been inspiring that, uh, you know, and and th- again, back to James Beard Foundation, the fact that the James Beard Awards, like there's so many, you know, um, women and people of color and black people that are, are winning awards nationally and from specific regions that like 10 years ago weren't. Um, that's that's huge progress, and that's really important. Um, John Smith is a great chef in town, and one of my best friends. Um, mm. You know, he's African American, and we talked about it. He similar experience. He's from Chicago, and he worked in great restaurants there, then great restaurants in New York. That we kind of overlapped our time in New York and knew a lot of the same people. Um, and he's also cooked in Paris and and London. And um, he and I were talking. Uh, I don't know. It was maybe a month ago at night, and uh, <clears throat> we were talking about our careers coming up. And I was thinking back on mine, and I'm like, okay, like maybe like the 10 chefs that, you know, were most, you know, important in my career that were, you know, either mentors to me or people I looked up to that that I actually knew and worked for. I'm like, of those 10, I think two were women, none were black, none looked like me. There was nobody with like my nose and my skin color, like, um, and of the chefs I worked for, I think there was one uh, Latino that was light-skinned and fluent native English speaker, you know? And and so, yeah, out of 10 chefs that, like, meant something to my career, 10 out of 10 are white, 8 out of 10 are women, like, 9 out of 10 are, like, you know, like, I don't know. That's crazy. And I asked John the same thing, and it was the same story, you know? He's like, yeah, I've worked for some women that were awesome, but he's like, I never had a, I never had a black chef. Um, he's like, I never even had a black sous chef. And for me, the only black sous chefs I knew were either from France or they were from like French colonies in Africa, former French colonies in Africa. So it was like the French connection was what rose them in the culinary world, not, you know, being African. Um, and that's, that sucks, you know, but like we're two, two people that have like cooked in multiple cities in multiple restaurants All over the world. and, and yeah. And like seen a lot in kitchens and none of us, like neither of us had ever had a chef that looked like us. Like, like it's weird. You just accept that when you're coming up and like we knew we wanted to do fine dining and that was the fine dining world was white man's world, you know, and, and we did it, you know, and we, we did all right in it, you know, but, um, it's changing. You think? Uh, yeah, I hope so. And like for for young kids that, you know, from really, you know, diverse backgrounds, chances are, you know, if you're like 19 and gay, it's really hard still in 2019. Like that's crazy hard, you know, being 19 sucks for all of us, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah. So if you have other challenges, like that's may- a universal, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So to see like, you know. LGBTQ people that are excelling across so many different fields, but specifically in kitchens is cool because, you know, there was, uh, you know, that's like 
it's always been accepted. I feel like restaurant people are way cooler and more progressive than the, the general population on so many things. And, and definitely LGBTQ rights is, is one of them. But at the same time, it's like still there's like, you know, there were gay people in every single restaurant I worked in coming up, but they were usually front of the house and they were usually kind of like playing a role, you know, like they acted a certain way. And now I think like LGBTQ people can be, you know, any position in the restaurant and present any way and act and dress and talk any way, just like the rest of us. And, um, and that feels really good. And I think about that for like young people and what that would mean for their careers. And that's exciting. And then definitely to, for, for women, like there's so many like great cooks that are women and because of, you know, issues with sexual harassment, but also issues with like parental leave and, and equal pay and, and all those things, it makes it way, way harder for them. And, um, for them to see, at least models of women that are succeeding and are winning and are getting recognized and are doing things their own way and, and not just like acting just like the men did and running a kitchen just like the men did. They're radically changing everything. It's so inspiring. And like it definitely changed how it changes how I want to walk through life and how I want to like shape my business. But it also like it just feels so good to know that like the next generation of like 18 and 22 year old women in kitchens like are seeing this shit and they get to do whatever they want and they get to be so much better than we were. And, um, I love that. And, uh, yeah. So for, for my cooks, especially, you know, my whole staff, but I think about the, the kitchen more. Um, but yeah, for my cooks, like I definitely try to celebrate, you know, other cuisines and, and chefs that are making it that are, you know, not all white men because, you know, I, I want them to like, come up differently than I did and, and to see broader horizons than, than I saw. So I know you read a lot of books and you mentioned earlier that you mostly read cookbooks for at least a decade. What have you read recently? That's not a cookbook. Okay. Um, well, um, a, a great one I just finished, um, is called, uh, I think it's just called forked, but it's by, uh, that sounds like food. It is. It's well. Well, I was gonna say. Okay, it's about the restaurant industry and it's about labor practices. So okay, like Sarjay Raman is a is a labor organizer for ROC is a Restaurant Opportunity Center, and um, I read her. Uh, I read two of her books in the last like six months, and they're powerful. But um, but she's a labor organizer. She's never worked in a restaurant, so I mean, uh, it's not really a food book. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I just finished that, and it was wonderful. Um, on deck, I have um, a couple books that aren't about food that I'm, I haven't got into yet. But uh, one is, um, I think it's called Capitalism, A Ghost Story, and it's about uh, colonialism in India. And I don't know how I came across that book, but it's like a quick read, and it came recommended from somebody I trust, but I don't remember who. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read that next because it's quick, and I can, like, knock it out. And then um, – Another is um, a book called Sober Curious. That that's another cool change in the industry, and and frankly, like a change in my life that I'm really like happy about is like that we're not just like you know the image of chefs as parties partying and like you know that like so much substance abuse happens in our industry, and so much of it was really like celebrated when I was growing up and you know growing into this. Work and, hard, um, play hard. Yeah, and like we almost all did, you know. And um, I know personally, for me, like I, I, 
I never, I don't think I've ever been an addict. I don't have that experience. And I'm really, really fortunate, you know, to have not gone through that. But like, I certainly abused alcohol for years and years. And, um, and really, it's like a new thing, I'd say in the last like seven or eight months, like, I just like, I it was in early December last year, I like, was really stressed and really tired. And I just felt kind of depressed. And I had a lot going on personally and professionally. And you know, I pretty much was drinking every night and I was just like, okay, like just tonight, I'm not going to drink just to see what that's like. And, um, you know, it had been a minute since I kind of had a reset and then it was like, okay, the next morning I'm like, well, that was good. And that was good for me. Like, I'll just do it again today. And, you know, I guess that's kind of <laughs> the, the AA thing, right? One day at a time. But, uh, um, but really I, 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 I ended up taking like most of December off entirely from drinking, you know, and including like the December 20th is the Rieger's anniversary and it's a, it's a huge party. Like so many people come out and our like loved ones and big supporters come and it's like, they bring a bottle of wine or they bring a bottle of whiskey and they give it to me, you know? <laughs> and, and like, I always felt like that the expectation was like, they want to drink with me and that's who they want me to be. And I would say that jokingly sometimes when I was nervous for a speaking engagement or when I was nervous to talk to a guest in the restaurant, um, I would like, if I was having a beer or whatever, like, um, I would always say like, eh, it's good like that I had this because people like me better when I'm drinking. And I, would, I, I was joking when I said it, but I kind of wasn't joking. Mm. Like, I really thought that, that like people liked me better if I was drinking. They expected it. And, um, and so now like, I don't want to stop drinking. Like, I, I love mezcal. I love wine with dinner. Like, you know, and I'm now that I'm drinking way less, I, I like, like way better beer. <laughs> um, so, you know. Alcohol is, like, important to my business and it's important, you know, in some ways to my life. But, like, I just finally learned moderation. I finally, like, slowed down and and snapped out of, like, the automatically, you know, chugging drinks. Like, and it's stupid the way, like, industry people, for us, we go to our friends' places and it's just, like, you walk through the door, they hand you a shot. It's, like, how we say hello, you know? And, Hmm. like... I don't want that. I don't need that. That's not good for me, you know? And I didn't ask you for that. So, like, yeah, I like pounds and hugs. And if you want to send me something, like, make it food and make it nice, you know? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, hugging at the door. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so that so that book was instrumental. Oh, so. Uh, kind well, of setting no, up the I, mindset. I, I, no, I haven't even read oh, it yet. Oh, yeah. you haven't but read basically, it. Basically, basically, uh, <laughs> yeah. Someone gave it to me because um, they knew that, that, you know, hey, and that, and that's like a thing that's happening in the industry is like so many people of my generation, I think, are like snapping out of it and learning moderation or quitting. And, um, and I think it's cool that, uh, actually, I heard that yesterday on KCUR that the reader got mentioned for a great non-alcoholic beverage program, mm. which, which I, I don't know what the discussion was I missed it, but um, but I'm happy our name was in the mix because that is something we try hard at. And, and honestly, I think Savad is better. Um, like we do really cool stuff at Savad, and it's really collaborative. It was something Caitlin wanted to do, but um, our whole staff is involved with, and they a lot of them have contributed a non-alcoholic uh, cocktail that's that's popular, and a lot of them have a following. Um, but um, I think that's something cool. And like recently, I've come across uh, the Capward Seed in Nashville is a great like, you know, a really important restaurant. And they're, like, on that front edge of, like, new southern cuisine. And um, and it's a tasting menu format, and they offer wine pairings like all restaurants. And then they also offer a non-alcoholic pairing for this coursed-out um, wow. tasting menu. And the it's, it's beverages that are really carefully thought out, and 
they're they're made from scratch with local ingredients. There's a lot of thought and attention and care, just like there is in the food, and they're done in a way that complements the food and it's an intentional pairing. And that's inspiring to me to think mm-hmm. about like, oh wow, like we could be offering like more hospitality to more people if we did stuff like that. And then also like if that becomes normal for us, we'll all be a lot healthier and happier and, and better people, I think. Like its own um, section on the menu, like a mocktail section. Yeah, yep. So Savat has one. The, the Rieger doesn't, but there's um, a lot of good regulars that don't drink that just know to just like. What to order. Hey, get that, th- you know, that thing you did last weekend, our bar- whoever our bartender is, they'll know what it is. But also we have a really talented bar team that, that cares about providing that hospitality for everyone. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, if you just say, just make me something not too sweet. I love, exactly. yeah, like I love lime or whatever. Like they'll they'll come up with something on the fly and it'll be great. It's literally exactly how I ordered at every restaurant <laughs> last year when I was pregnant. You yeah, know, yeah, uh, yeah. the antler room made me something say. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Graham and Dunn has a good little section on that, and so does um, Novel. They have a mocktail section yeah. on their menu too. Yeah, it's but it feels recent. Like yeah. you said, this is all just kind of. Yeah. Coming to fruition. Yeah. So this book, I, I literally haven't even opened it yet. So, you know, I don't want to like everyone read it. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe it's stupid. I don't know. But uh, but yeah. But but a lot of I books love... we read in book club are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, only half the reason for book club, right? Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I like that uh, that um, it's it's focused on um, it's not like how to get over addiction. It's not about like, if you can't drink, here's a way to still have a life. <laughs> you know, it's about like, you know, from, from what I read on the back cover anyway, it's about <laughs> um, that like, hey, like if your goal is to have the most fun, you should consider that maybe you'd have more fun if you didn't drink. Hmm. And and that seems crazy to me from like the way I grew up. But then like now where I'm at, I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know if that's true, but like maybe I'm definitely going to find out about that. Well, it's a really interesting idea. How can do you have a book club going? Because I I have seen you say this Mm. is what I'm reading right now. So like, do you do that regularly? And have you thought about the Howard Hanna Rieger (laughs) Rieger book club? Because I'm kind of interested. I don't know. uh... (laughs) Seems like you're reading some cool stuff. Yeah. And um, okay, so it was uh, it was I think I guess it was probably two years ago. um, I just made it my goal that I'm like, I always say I want to read more, but that's really like open-ended. So, you know, if you always like have a book you're reading, it might take you two months to finish and then right. you get to the end of the year and you read six books or whatever. So I'm like, realistically, I can read, you know, probably like three books a month, you know? So that was my goal at the beginning of the year. And like, I never do New Year's resolutions. Like I, I hate stuff like that, honestly, but, um, but I did want to feel accountable and I did want to feel like I had to stay on track. So, so I went ahead and said, like, here's my, like, accountability post or whatever they call it, <laughs> um, you know, but, like, this is my goal. I'm going to try to stick to it, and I'll post photos on Instagram of what I'm reading. Um, and so I did it all that year, and the rule I made for myself then was um, out of the three books a month, one had to have nothing to do with food, one could be about the industry but not, like, a chef book, and then one could be, like, a, a straight food book or a cookbook. Um, so, so that guaranteed that I'd pursue other interests and not just like, you know, I have um, this same problem. My kids are like, do you ever read a book that's not about food? Mm -hmm. And 
uh, you know, I've joined a book club in the last year and a half, and I'm reading some things that don't have to do with food. Yeah. And also, I'm starting to listen to some podcasts that don't have yeah. much to do with food. And I'm learning a lot from both of them, and I think yeah. it's helping me round out a little bit yeah. from I, my food world. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, like, that's, I'm happy to hear you're doing that. Like, that's cool. I think, uh, you know... Specialization is great and following your passion is great, but like I want to be a whole person, you know, and like I have different sides to me and I want to give voice to all of them, you know. So the one I want to read is um, One Small Leap, I think it's called, or One Giant. It's about the space program mm-hmm. ah. and the, uh, it just sounds fascinating. And so I'm a space geek. Jill. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I, I read Apollo 8. It yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. I recommend that then. Well, so there's an anniversary. Coming up, yes, 50 years is. since the moon landing. And so this book feeds into that. And it was a riveting podcast I listened to. And I'm like, I said to my book club, let's read this. And they're all like, yeah. So we're getting away from that Victorian um, <laughs> romanticism that we've been reading, which <laughs> I'm having a hard time. It, it's interesting, but it's probably not my jam. So <laughs> anyway, Howard, it's been a pleasure. So fantastic to have you on. Um, thank you for talking about such a wide range of really interesting and somewhat personal stuff. Yeah. We appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a great conversation. Um, you know, coming into it when I asked you, like, oh, so, you know, I said yes. And then I'm like, but wait, what do you what do you want me to talk about? And you're like, oh, it's just a conversation. I'm like, whoa, cool. Did we hold true to that? Yeah, very much. We always don't yeah. know where it's going to go. And that's part of the fun. Yeah, it, journey is, with us. it is the fun. I yeah. think we barely knew where this was going. <laughs> and, and I love where it went. Yes. <laughs> That's Chef Howard Hanna taking us beyond the plate today on Chew Diligence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.